Uh, you know, this morning, we're jumping back into the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy, as you'll remember, is uh, multiple things. It's certainly a restatement of God's law to a new generation, right? It's a new generation that is ready and poised to enter the promised land. And God reminds them through Moses of his law. But it's also a love letter, right? It's God's love letter to his people. And particularly in Deuteronomy 7, but really through the whole book, God reminds his people that they're his possession. And that he has chosen them, not because they're so awesome, but because he loved them. In fact, he says they're actually the least of all peoples. And that, that applies really to the church today, that God didn't choose me, he didn't choose you, he didn't choose us because we're so wonderful. No, he chose us because he loved us and he called us out. The biblical Greek word for the church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. But he's called us out that we might be different than the surrounding people around which we live. This was true of ancient Israel and what we're going to look at in Deuteronomy. It's still true for us today. And so as we look at the text that we're going to get into this morning, uh, we've been talking since we got to Deuteronomy 18 that, that God kind of moves from talking about uh, the narrative of Israel's history and, and what their parents did and what they are facing. And now he kind of gets down to brass tacks. We've, we're calling it practical matters, right? God is dealing with, this is what it looks like to live different than the surrounding cultures uh, that surround you uh, for me in these very practical ways. And sometimes those practical ways are weird, right? Different culture, different time. Uh, sometimes they apply directly. And I think that will continue uh, as we study this word. So we open the word, we look at it, we read what it says and we say, okay, what did this mean to the, to the original hearers? How were they supposed to live this out? And then we draw out sometimes direct teaching and sometimes a principle in terms of what difference does it make in 2022? How do we apply this corporately and sometimes individually as God's people today? And so our big point this morning is this idea of dignity. A lot of what this section of Deuteronomy is, is that God calls his people to be different and to have a unique and special dignity about how they live and how they do community that's different than those that are around them. Today, we're dealing with the dignity of personhood in three different scenarios. The dignity of personhood, that is that as human beings, God says that we are image bearers of creator God. And as God's people, he says that we are children, sons and daughters of the king. And the gospel restores that sense of personhood to us. And so we're going to look at that with three points this morning. We're going to see in three sections that God calls his people to display a unique dignity where marriage and divorce is concerned, uh, a unique dignity as it pertains to uh, sort of business transactions within the family, and finally, societal life. God's people are to display a unique dig dignity in societal life. We've got a lot to tackle this morning. And so let's look to the Lord in prayer and then we'll read the text. Our God and Father, we thank you for the witness of your word to speak into our lives. Lord, that, that this, these words from Moses to his people as he prepares uh, to transition the kingdom, uh, his people Israel to Joshua, that have direct application for them, that there are implications and applications for us today as well. And so Lord, would you help us to hear and to receive the things that we need to hear and receive, even if they're hard things, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, let's begin with this first section, uh, displaying the dignity in marriage. We're gonna read the first five verses of Deuteronomy 24. Moses writes, if a man marries a woman, 
but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, and hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, where if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. When a man takes a bride, he must not go out with the army or be liable for any duty. He is free to stay at home for one year so that he can bring joy to the wife he has married. We're going to look in this section that God's people are to be different than the surrounding peoples where the practice of marriage and divorce were concerned. We begin with the fact that God is regulating here uh, wrong behavior, essentially. So the principle of interpretation that Zach introduced last week, that there are times in the scripture where God regulates something that's not the ideal or or the design that he put forward. And so God provides this sort of marital scenario, if you will. Uh, It's likely that that Israel picked up the practice of divorce from their 400 years in Egypt. And, And we don't know whether this is addressing current behavior or future potential behavior or both. It's likely both. But here's what's at stake. This law sort of governs this practice that was essentially legalized affairs and wife swapping. And so the people would uh, use this sort of legal loophole by writing, the men in particular, by writing a certificate of divorce, sending their wife away, and they'd actually swap, marry, divorce, and go back to the original spouse. And this is common in people surrounding Israel, and God here is saying, enough of that. You are to be different where the practice of marriage and divorce is, to con- is concerned. This law in particular addresses what might happen or may happen rather than what ought to happen or what should happen according to God's design. And so you have this scenario again where this mess of relation, this relational situation that's, that's messy and complicated, God is giving a law to govern his people to look and to be different. Now, Tom Constable in his commentary on this passage uh, speaks of this sort of uh, uh, ascending ideal. And I think this applies almost directly today. Listen to what he says. He says, the worst situation envisaged in these verses is divorce, remarriage, divorce, then remarriage to the first spouse. That's the issue of wife swapping, if you will. The better situation was divorce and remarriage. Still better was divorce and no remarriage. And best of all, was no divorce. And so God's ideal, uh, and we would say this is true today, that if you are facing marriage difficulty, God's will for you, God's design is not to divorce, but to stay married and to work through it in the community of God's people. And you see each each situation sort of degrades from that. Now, the reason this law exists is because there's God's ideal and then life happens, right? And in particular, as God is calling his people to be different than the influence of surrounding cultures. This law is also ultimately a protection. You know, if you, if you read this text, you just kind of read it outright without studying it, you'll probably come away with this impression that this text really devalues women. But the opposite is actually true because this law is set in contrast to the behaviors of the surrounding cultures and that God's people were to be different. And so this law actually protects the mistreatment and of abuse of women in a culture where they were being treated like property. I I liken it to free agency in modern sports, 
right? I mean, that sounds base, but that's essentially what the practice was. And again, that God is reinforcing his people are to be different. It's another text where within the cultural context and of the time, God is elevating and honoring and esteeming and protecting women. Now to a modern Western sensibility, it might not look that way. But when we understand the text in its original context, in its original historical background, that becomes abundantly clear. Now what's fascinating is, is the text that says, if a husband uh, writes her divorce certificate because he finds something indecent about her, this, uh, that indecent about her thing became liberalized over the centuries. And there were different schools of rabbinical thought in terms of what reasons a man could put away his wife by divorce. By the time it got to the time of Jesus, there was one school of thought, a liberal school of thought, that said a husband could divorce his wife for any reason, even if she burnt the dinner. Literally, that's what's in the rabbinical text. Now, I've been married for more than 20 years. Some of you know where I'm going. <laughs> My wife is an amazing cook. Some of you have eaten her cooking. She's an amazing cook, which is a little baffling because she's British in her heritage. I'm sorry. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not standing on a high horse. I'm Scotch-Irish. Our food is the worst, okay? Hey, let's boil everything and put no seasoning on it. That'll be awesome. If you're Mediterranean or particularly Portuguese or Italian, man, your food is so much better than mine. But my wife's an amazing cook, but I can think of, on one hand, three or four times we had these humorous encounters where we'd sit down to dinner as a family and either myself, my kids, or sometimes my wife would say after we begin eating, like, anybody think we should go order a pizza? <laughs> but imagine the scenario and the application of this if I stood up and said, that's it, get out, it's over. Because of a, less than excellent dinner. You know, the protection here is the abuse of women. The f being treated frivolously and as property. I think as we apply this, one of the protections here is against cheap divorce and unbiblical remarriage. And I think both of those are issues even in the church. Cheap divorce and unbiblical marriage. Uh, divorce today is exceptionally accessible too accessible and too cheap. And I wanna, I wanna draw this other scenario out in illustration to make the point. Imagine with me if divorce was more painful than staying together. And, and let me say this and then I'll, I'll give you my scenario. If you find yourself divorced this morning, if that's part of, as part of our family, that's where you're at. I wanna share a, really a pastoral burden for you so hang with me as I spell out this illustration. I'm going to come back to where the, the scripture brings comfort here. But imagine a scenario where you uh, had to have a divorce ceremony to go through a divorce. Uh, the average couple, according to the knot.com, spends twenty-eight dollars to $34,000 on their wedding day. I mean, we spent 5000 so I don't know where these people are getting this money. But twenty-eight. that's the average in the United States. The average divorce costs $15,000. About half. And that number is driven up significantly by divorces where, where there are a particular a vast amount of assets and multiple children involved. So it's, really you can get divorced for a couple thousand bucks and essentially there are no witnesses required. Uh, at a wedding ceremony, you invite on average, there are 100 to 150 people attend a wedding. So imagine a divorce ceremony where the law required that you spend the same amount of money you spent on the wedding ceremony. 
where the law required that you invite the same amount of guests and the same people to come back to the divorce ceremony. Imagine in a Christian context, if you had to go through the same amount of marriage counseling sessions that you did pre-marriage counseling, which I understand not everybody does. I wonder, I just wonder. See, divorce in our culture has become extremely easy and God is calling his people to be different than the surrounding culture. So what does that mean for us? And what about remarriage? Now it's, it's true that there are some uh, merited reasons that someone might get remarried. I wanna look at Jesus' teaching on this because the Pharisees come to Jesus, they ask him about divorce and remarriage and he actually teaches from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So look in Matthew 19, the, the Pharisees come to him, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? There's that liberal interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees adopted the more liberal thought that they could divorce, a man could divorce a wife for any reason. Note Jesus' response. He goes creational and he goes permanence. He says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, and this is Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, and here's the permanence, what God has joined together, let no one separate. An, in essence, Jesus is kind of saying it's not actually possible because when a husband and wife are married, there's, there's a bonding that happens. But he's asked another question. Well, why then? And note the language difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. Why did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? And Jesus responds, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. Or another way to say that is, it was not God's intention. This was not the original plan. And Jesus then says this, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, there's a few really fascinating things that Jesus is doing here. And then I want to come back and speak to those of you in the room who might actually be divorced. First, Jesus is restoring the nature of what ought to happen rather than what may happen. He's doing the exact, he's taking Deuteronomy that addresses the hypothetical and, and goes back to the original intent. He goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And he says, God allowed that because life happened, right? God's people were called out and they were a mess in some regard. But that's not his plan. And Jesus restores what ought to be elevating marriage to this uh, particularly high place. But also what's contained in Matthew's gospel, uniquely not in Mark's gospel, is what's become known as the exception clause. That is, he who divorces his wife commits adultery, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness. And so it is biblical that if there's a case of marital unfaithfulness, that it is permitted biblically for divorce. And that begs the question, if there is a biblical cause for divorce, is there a biblical cause for remarriage? And Christians stand in different places on this. I'll tell you the elders of this church will say that where infidelity is involved and where you have a believer married to a non-believer, there may be scenarios where it's appropriate or allowable for remarriage after divorce. But they're actually pretty rare. The biblical teaching, and we'll look at it from Corinthians in a moment, is remarriage to the original spouse or divorce results in singleness with some exceptions. 
Now, why does the Bible hold such a hard line on this? Well, there's two reasons. One, because God gets the greatest glory when there's restoration. And I would argue particularly when there's been unfaithfulness. And because you don't know the end story and I don't know the end story and I certainly don't know your story or everyone in this room, but God does. And he is uh, hyper glorified when a marriage that is basically over and has experienced infidelity uh, uh, sees a miracle and it's nothing short of a miracle. I will tell you in my lifetime, I know of eight or nine marriages that have been restored even from infidelity. I remember one when I was a kid, uh, it was a, um, a gentleman who was uh, in leadership here. I think he was an elder at one point and he and his wife divorced they were apart for I think eight years in different parts of the country and as she was moving toward remarrying she was engaged she just got wrecked by the Holy Spirit and, and fell in repentance and came back to him in Connecticut I think they were in Connecticut but whatever the case and they got remarried and they lived married happily for another 30 years until she passed away from cancer a couple of years ago I could tell that story in different varieties several times so the first reason is that God gets greater glory when there's restoration. The second reason is our main point this morning, because God's people are to have a unique and special dignity when it comes to how we do marriage and divorce. And I think we've lost some of that shine, if you will. Now, I will tell you, I don't believe the statistic that uh, marriage or that divorce rates inside the church are equal to the culture because those studies are based on Christianity and its wider definition, not gospel communities of people who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I will tell you, I think we've lost some of the, some of the witness there. So quick plug. This uh, next Wednesday, not this coming, but the following Wednesday, Thanksgiving Eve, we're going to have a service here uh, it's going to be a powerful night. It'll be a little bit of a different Thanksgiving Eve service. If you've been before, it's a little longer. It's about an hour. But we're going to tell three redemption stories. We're so excited about this night. We're going to encourage you to come. One of those stories is a restored marriage. And you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be a powerful, powerful night. Well, what if you're sitting there this morning and you're saying one of two things? I'm divorced. Where do I fit in this? Or uh, we're remarried, but now that I'm hearing this teaching, or as I've looked at the word, I recognize it probably wasn't a biblical remarriage. What on earth do we do with that? Let me speak to the divorced person first. And by the way, like unmarried young singles right now are going, man, we got that, our situation in that bad. This is complicated, right? They're probably feeling a little bit of sense of relief here. But to those of you who may be divorced this morning, I want to encourage you that you are not jaded, you are not less than, you are not on the margins of the family of God, you are not, to use our summer series title, unusable. That God is a redeeming God and he has a place for you that isn't just, oh, we'll find something to you do over here. You're vital to the body, and I mean this body, to GBC. One of the things that's really a, a providential mystery is how through your circumstances, God has put you back in a place where you have a bunch of discretionary time. And my encouragement would be serve the body, serve the kingdom, go deep in community. It's a tremendous opportunity for God's kingdom and for him to redeem your story. Well, what if you're, you suspect that 
You might be in an unbiblical remarriage. What on earth do you do there? Well, Paul actually writes to this very situation in the book of Corinth. The Corinthian church came out of an extremely mixed up uh, sexual background. To Corinthianize was to be sexually immoral. Corinth was a bad city. And people came to Christ in all kinds of weird scenarios. So this is what Paul says to them. And this would apply to you if you're not sure about the situation that you're in. He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. There's the, the law about uh, remarriage, the general law about remarriage. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And here's what Paul says. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So while Paul, after divorce, encourages singleness or remarriage to the original spouse, what he's saying is if you come to a point of faith in Jesus or a point of understanding of scripture where you recognize that your current marriage is not actually a biblical remarriage, Paul's saying, don't go out and get another divorce. Be repentant in the place that you're at and stay in the state that you're at and just live faithfully for the Lord. Serve the kingdom. Be a part of the body. And work together for the kingdom of God. Remain the state in the state that you're in. Now I recognize that uh, in some ways, speaking one point of a sermon on this topic probably almost provokes more questions than it answers. But remember the big point, that God's people, the church are to be different, have a unique dignity in how we go about doing marriage and divorce. And so God gives a law at the very end of this passage that I, I'm curious, and I'll ask this when I get to heaven one day, I think should have been verse one because it's sort of the proactive antidote to the previous four verses. God says, when a man marries a woman, he's not to be obligated to duty or to go off to war for a year, but to invest in the joy of his marriage. Invest in the joy of his marriage. Establish his marriage in the Lord, which would ultimately guard against all the previous things we've been talking about, at least to a certain degree. You know, this is one of the things, if I've ever done anything right in my life, this is one of the things my wife and I did almost verbatim here when we got married. I, I was, um, we got married in 2002, and previous to that, I was in secular employment, but I was in volunteer ministry all over the place. I did youth group and Sunday school and summer camp, working with both middle and high school students. I served on uh, the board of directors for Camp Berea. I was involved in leading our 20s group with some other folks here. I was just deep in ministry, 15, 20 hours a week, because I loved it. I knew it was my calling. And when we got engaged, I said to my wife, once we're married for the next year, I'm stepping aside from all of these commitments and it's just you and me, babe. And I will tell you, it was a powerful year. It was a wonderful year. I stepped away from all those commitments and others were able to, to be raised up. And so I would punch the clock at my blue collar job, like literally when we had clocks to punch and I would drive home and I get home at 5, 5.30 night after night after night after night after night. And I get home and say, what do you want to do tonight? And we'd cook dinner and we'd watch movies, we'd take walks, we'd make love. We'd established our relationship in the joy of the Lord. And I think that one of the reasons that we have a healthy marriage that's relatively free from, uh, from real conflict is because of that first year. And I certainly think that it established us and gave us a foundation for ministry. And so, so grateful for that. Now, the word of encouragement here, if you're a newlywed, is be very careful about your commitments in that first year of marriage, even to the church. 
And maybe you're like, you've been married for a while and you're like, gosh, we didn't do that. And, you know, kind of too late. Or maybe you are newly married and, and you didn't do that. My, my encouragement would be find the place to be sabbatical-like with your married life, to establish that in love. Finding the joy of married life. Well, there's certainly much more we could say here. And I think that this chapter has something to say for everyone. I want to move into the next section here. And we'll kind of hit this one quickly. Uh, Verse six, Moses says, do not take a pair of grindstones or even the upper millstone as a security for a debt because that is like taking a life as security. Verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not enter his house to collect what he offers as security. Stand outside while the man you are making the loan to brings security out to you. If he's a poor man, do not sleep with the garment that he has given you as security. Be sure to return it to him at sunset. Then he will sleep in it and bless you. And this will be counted as righteousness to you before the Lord your God. Do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your Israelite brothers or one of the resident aliens in a town in your land. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. Here we see that God's people are to be different than the surrounding peoples where the practices of making and collecting loans and treating and paying employees we're concerned. There's really two principles here that are kind of the same. Honor the debtor and honor the laborer. Honor the debtor and honor the laborer. That's different than what the other cultures were doing. And note the power dynamics here. The one who had the greater power, the lender, was to be honoring to the one who had the lesser power, the debtor or the laborer. This is a picture of the gospel. This is what Jesus does for us, right? He who is the God of the universe come in human flesh lays down his life for us. And so we see notes of the gospel very early in the scripture. Now the two principles here for how the debtor in particular was to be honored were really interesting. Uh, Maybe somewhat even confusing until we look deeper at the text. He says, don't take their grindstones or an upper millstone. And what he's saying is, don't take the debtor's ability to provide for his living and even to provide to pay you back as security for a debt. Leave him the ability, dignity, right? To be able to provide for himself and to pay back his debt. Second thing is, do not enter his personal space, invade the privacy of his home and family life and dishonor him and humiliate him for the sake of paying back a debt. And the second principle, honor the laborer, is to treat and pay people fairly. Uh, We could see this applied in Acts chapter 2, where uh, essentially God's people are to take care of each other, to share and support and provide for one another. But there's a particularly profound picture of the gospel and of Jesus' love for us in these two principles, and particularly the honor the debtor. Think about what Jesus did when he came into your life, right? When Jesus came into your life, Jesus very much comes into our personal space, into our private world. He gets all in there. But he doesn't dishonor us. He doesn't humiliate us. He doesn't demand payment for our sin debt. No, Jesus comes deeply into our personal space and he quietly and gently says, let me take your debt. And then he is humiliated. And he is dishonored and he's even killed that we might have redemption. It's a powerful picture. 
And God's people are to be different in these transactions because God has been different to them. And even though Christ hasn't come yet, God is still the same. I chose you because I loved you. And I redeemed you with my mighty right hand, God says. You see, the gospel reestablishes our dignity, the dignity of our personhood. As human beings that were image bearers and as, as Christians that were children of the living God, children of the King. It's powerful. More we could say, let's move to the last section. Verse 17, it says, do not uh, deny justice to a resident alien or fatherless child and do not take a widow's garment as security. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. When you reap the harvest in your field and, and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. God's people were to be different than the surrounding peoples where the practice of harvesting and providing for the marginalized. This is biblical justice in contrast to social justice. Social justice is retributive in nature. It's, it's paying back wrongs and it's redistributive in nature. It's making sure that everybody has equal amounts of resources. Biblical justice uh, sees to the betterment of the other person at cost to myself for two reasons. And we talked about this a year ago in Deuteronomy 10. At the end of Deuteronomy 10, 15, it says, he chose you out of all peoples, you. And then verse 18, he, that is God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. The gospel and biblical justice begins with the idea of remembering. Twice in this passage in verse 15 or verse 18 and verse 22, on either side of the gleanings law, it says, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. God's people were to love the marginalized, the, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, because that's who they had been in Egypt. And remember that in the scripture, Israel's enslavement to Egypt pictures our enslavement to sin, that we can affect no change of our own. That apart from, from Christ, apart from God's intervening work on my, my behalf, I am enslaved and in bondage to Egypt, to sin. And just as God delivers his people through the Red Sea, that pictures my freedom in Christ, my deliverance in Christ through his blood, that we then enter the promised land of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is the gospel. That I, as I trust in that provision and deliverance of God, I am renewed. I step into promised land as it were. And so biblical justice is then my right response to, to bring that message, that hope and healing to other people. And you know this morning who understands what it means to be redeemed and set free from slavery to sin extremely vividly and very recently and to have new life and forgiveness and eternal life? Our brothers this morning who shared and those who didn't get a chance to share, I encourage you after the service, hear their stories. You this morning, if you don't know what it is to walk with God through Jesus, to be set free from Egypt, so to speak, please see us. 
so that we can share that with you. Biblical justice begins with remembering. But biblical justice also balances both generosity and prudence. Biblical justice is not a handout and nor is it a stingy hand. Biblical justice is generosity and prudence. Note that in the gleanings law, that the people who were, who were picking up the gleanings had to go out to the fields and gather that which was left over. There was, there was prudence involved in this. It wasn't just generosity. But there's a fascinating picture in not just the triple repetition. Remember, triple repetition in the Bible means this is important. But also note that there are three crops there's grain, that is that which sustains life. There's olives, which uh, ultimately bring olive oil and that which uh, provides healing. And there's grapes. And in the Bible, wine symbolizes joy. Here's what God is saying through Moses. God's blessings to his covenant people are so lavish, so overflowing that the leftovers, that which falls off or runs over the cup is enough to provide life and healing and joy to those in the margins. It's a profound point that Moses is making that even the leftovers can bring what the Bible would call shalom, wholeness, life, healing, and even joy. This is the amazing God that we serve generosity and prudence. You know, here at GBC, we have what's called uh, a gleanings fund. It's based on this passage in this Old Testament principle. And the gleanings fund is uh, generally a one-time financial help uh, to someone in need, but there's ownership of it. There's an application that's required. There's a submitting of a budget. There's working through your expenses. It's not easy, but it's generous. It's there for those needs that you may or may not have. Is a lot that we talked about this morning. God cares for you deeply if you find yourself in any one of those situations. One of the things that I neglected to mention in the first service, that there's a reason to hear at Groton Bible Chapel that we have a ministry called Divorce Care. There is a place for you here. But I suspect that some of you have own businesses, that some of you are in ministry or have care of groups of people. I suspect that some of you work in the public sector and social service and other places. And so as we think about applying this text, what are those places where God is calling us to look different as a church to the surrounding culture? Because we're all included in this. One last note and we'll be done. Moses in this teaching, if you notice, he started with the, the family, with the home, marriage. The first law applied to the family unit. The second law was within the community of God's people and how they transacted with each other, how they cared for and provided for each other and honored, not dishonored each other. The third law was the fringes of society and sort of their intersecting points with the larger culture around them. As you go from here today, I would encourage you in your conversations home, maybe discussions around the football game later, or maybe even just on your own drive to work tomorrow, to ponder and think, what is a place where God is calling me to be different, to live differently, to have that unique dignity that marks me as a believer in Jesus? What are the places that we as a church need to grow in this area? Maybe it's honoring your marriage and working to restore a marriage that's strained or on the verge of breaking. Maybe it's being generous to your employees, even just with your words, saying, well done. Or maybe there are things that we can do to be a greater resource encouragement to, our, to the community around us. Let's pray together.
Father, your word this morning reminds us that what you do, and we've heard it in the individual testimonies today and in this passage, is you're always in a mode of restoring things. And Lord, we recognize that your law in the Old Testament and in the New puts forth some hard truths that we then have to apply to life as it stands. And as leaders, these can be extremely complicated scenarios. And so Lord, on the one hand, I ask you for wisdom to those who are going through hard times, particularly in their family relationships. On the other hand, Lord, I ask for conviction that we would feel led of you, oh God, to apply these truths and doing something differently even this week. Pray in the name of Jesus, amen.